Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, federal officials release their latest COVID-19 data, and they're calling for increased restrictions to counter the growth in new cases and variants. We'll hear from an epidemiologist on the latest figures and why vaccines alone won't beat the third wave. Our MPs panel will look at the federal pandemic response, including the latest questions about vaccine delivery. And our journalist panel looks at the political landscape now that the Supreme Court has given the green light to Ottawa's carbon pricing regime. But we start with the latest tonight on the modelling from officials at the Public Health Agency of Canada. The number of cases has increased by 30% in the past two weeks, and that's expected to continue to increase. Across the country, more infections and more harmful variants are making up a growing proportion of cases. More than half of the cases in Ontario are now variants, and an Ontario study is showing that the variants are causing 60% more hospitalizations and deaths. Here is Dr. Teresa Tam of the Public Health Agency. COVID-19 still has a few tricks in store, and it's clear that we need to hold on together a bit stronger and longer until vaccines have us better protected. While the news of increasing disease activity and shifting trends in severe outcomes is discouraging after so many months of sacrifice, we've made significant progress, and as the warmer days approach, we'll have more options to get outside as we work through this critical leg of the COVID-19 marathon. The ramp-up in vaccine supply beginning this week will accelerate vaccine programs, returning more benefits to protect more Canadians. Well, to get some more perspective on where we stand today, I'm joined by Dr. Lisa Barrett. She's a clinician and an infectious disease specialist in Halifax. Dr. Barrett, uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, no problem. Uh, Can I get your reaction to what you saw today, to the latest modelling? Well, I I don't think at least from an infectious disease perspective, that this is uh, shocking. Uh, I I certainly think that we really need to consider what we've learned in the last year about what happens when we have cases, what happens when there are cases where it's likely that there's community spread. And uh, I think we really have to start thinking back to the basics in some ways. Um, Vaccines are helpful but we also need to think about what we need to do immediately in order to make this better. Okay, you're getting to the crux of the issue because uh, Dr. Theresa Tam and the officials at the briefing today said Canada needs to rapidly increase public health restrictions. you agree with that? I do. Uh, You know, public health folks are amazing. They don't look just at the virus. They also consider what the impact is on populations. However, At the very heart of the matter, when we started this, we knew that if our certain set of numbers, one, community spread, two, the reproductive number of this virus was greater than one, daily seven-day rates of new cases increased, and that there was ongoing increases every few days, that we didn't have control of the spread of this virus. And vaccines are great, but they take a little while to work, And if we don't get this under control, the number of cases is going to continue to go into that exponential type of increase that will fill our ICUs even further. And we can't wait for vaccines in order to act. 
Okay, I was going to ask you that because a lot of people say, oh, it's a race of vaccines versus variants. But uh, a lot of people are saying, no, the variants are here. The here and now is the variants. And we are in the third wave and we need old-fashioned public health restrictions, measures. Yeah, and, and again, just to come back to this, this is not said without thinking about the impact on people, on businesses, on people who are less advantaged, who often do and have in this pandemic, taken the brunt of these restrictions. So I would say, as we go into considering needing short-term, but very, very important and very swift implementation of some additional precautions, I think we also need to consider the fact that many populations who are vulnerable took the brunt of taking uh, these precautions to heart before people with less resources, less finances, and we need to support them. Not in a few weeks, but the federal government needs to provide leadership to the provinces and say, these people in this particular set of restrictions and lockdowns have to be supported actively and engaged properly so that they are not disadvantaged disproportionately. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't and I'm gonna be clear about this, that doesn't mean we shouldn't implement these precautions right now. It's for their protection, it's for everyone's protection, and it has to happen swiftly. Okay, I wanna ask you about another thing that's making the headlines today, today, and that is reports that the science table in Ontario will be giving this, these, uh, this data to the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, uh, next week. Uh, but it's data that suggests that there's 60% more hospitalizations and 60% more fatality or deaths uh, in the variants than in the previous version of the virus. What do you make of, of those suggestions from that data? So we've been getting these pieces of data around the variants and what their uh, differences may be from a spreadability perspective or transmission perspective, as well as from a clinical implications perspective. And as we go through, it may be that there are slight differences between each of the different variants, but the key core part is that transmission is very much higher, which means that every single additional case may mean transmission to more people, especially in areas without, as you put it, those good old fashioned precautions of mass distancing. And also in a clinical perspective, that means that every single other case, whether 60% is exactly the right number or not, there's more morbidity and mortality with these variants, may differ a little bit between each variant, but the take home message is, if this is true, which I believe it is, this means that there are big implications even for younger folks and also for our healthcare system. So that's why it's important that we don't wait just for the vaccines to roll out and ramp up. We need something to buffer the next two months in most parts of Canada. Mm -hmm. And that's why with those 60% numbers, I don't care what the plus or minus percentage is, there's more morbidity, more mortality, more transmission, bad setup for bad things unless we implement those key core parts of our prevention toolbox just before vaccines completely roll out. A last question briefly, but it may be a bit of a silver lining for those who do get vaccinated. What's the record of vaccines against the variants? 90% uh, of the variants in Canada are this B117 variant first identified in the UK. 90% are that variant. I've seen suggestions that the vaccines are more successful against that particular variant than say the Brazilian or the uh, other variants. Yeah, the B117 variant does seem to have um, a more directed set of mutations that do allow for more of the vaccine generated um, antibodies to be effective against it. Um, 
it's important to note that uh, vaccine immunity is not uh, a plus or a minus at present or absent. There are variations. And B117, although some of the antibody levels may be slightly different or slightly lower, still seem to be very good and protective, both in real world data and in the lab. So given that most of our variants are B117 right now, that's a good thing for responses to vaccine. Keep getting vaccines. It is worth it. But also a real cautionary tale here around making sure that we keep variant surveillance at our borders and within our, our different provinces very, very active as we go forward. We don't want to be behind in variant recognition. We want to be ahead of it so that we can look for vaccines that keep working. Okay, Dr. Lisa Barrett, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Take care. In addition to the public health agency, federal ministers also gave a briefing on Friday. Procurement Minister Anita Anand insisted that despite concerns over potential delays or interruptions in vaccine shipments, after receiving 6 million doses of vaccines in the past three months, Canada is set to receive 6 million more doses in the next three weeks. This is a period of intense global demand for the same product. And as a result, uh, what we have seen the world wide is that countries are competing for vaccines. In this process, Canada is utilizing its diversified portfolio of vaccines to pull vaccine from multiple sources, Belgium, Spain and Switzerland, India, the United States. That's part of our strategy of diversification in order to manage the bumps that the international environment is presenting to us. Well, to look at the week in federal politics and the latest in Canada's response to the pandemic, I'm joined now by three MPs from the different parties. William Amos is a Liberal MP for the Quebec riding of Pontiac, and he's also the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Science. Karen Vecchio is a Conservative MP for the Ontario riding of Elgin, Middlesex, London, and she's her party's Deputy House Leader. And Jenny Kwan is the NDP member for Vancouver East and her party's Deputy Health Critic. All three of you, thanks for joining us. Thank you so for having much. us. Okay, I want to start with something today. Uh, we had a briefing from the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada. Uh, William Amos, it, would, it seems without, it's clear beyond a doubt that for most of the country now, we are well into this third wave of the pandemic. We had some continuing questions this week about uh, supply of vaccines. Uh, the minister is saying that the, she believes that that's been dealt with, but there's still a lot of insecurity there. What would you say is the government's message as we stand now to... Canadians with regards to this pandemic? Well, I think everyone recognizes that Canadians are tired. The Canadians are, are hurting. They just want this to be over. Uh, and so the outlook can be frustrating at times, uh, but we're, we're just so close to that finish line. Um, and we just need to keep going, make sure that we uh, do our part, uh, continue following the, the public health guidance, um, and also have confidence that the vaccines uh, are coming in as expected. Uh, we said that we would have six million by the end of March. We'll be we're well on track to get uh, to get eight million. So there's going to be turbulence uh, week by week. Uh, the Moderna example uh, this week is is you know one such example. But as M uh, Minister Anand confirmed, uh, we will be getting those doses a little later next week. Overall picture: the vaccines are coming. We're well on track to get everyone vaccinated by September, uh, and we just need to keep doing our bit individually, as families, uh, as community members, because we, we're just that close. Okay, uh, Karen Vecchio, for you, what is the most pressing concern uh, concerning the pandemic, where we stand now, and the government's response? 
Well, first of all, I really appreciate Will's optimism. I just wish everybody else felt that way and Canadians felt that way. Canadians are tired of this and we are looking for clarity. Uh, Minister Anand had mentioned one thing on, on the Wednesday that would have more than on the, the Thursday change where it was. We know that we're having problems getting those vaccines from the, the EU and we're asking for clarity. There are over 100 countries that have agreements that they are not going to have issues. Canada does not happen to be one of those. So there needs to be some sort of uh, we need to have clarity. We need to be insured. And then we know that there's issues with the vaccines coming in from India as well. So although we hear about these numbers that are coming in, it's pretty hard to put doses in arms when they are not even shipped into Canada yet. So I, too, would be like to like to be optimistic like Will. It's just that we have not seen this actually pan out as the, the government has uh, predicted. OK, Jenny Kwan is a deputy health critic for the NDP. Uh, you were raising issues of of the pandemic today. What's uh, what's on your mind as we enter as we had this briefing today from the Canada Public, the Public Health Agency of Canada? Well, I have to tell you, Canada is way behind eight ball and, and behind other countries. Take, for example, in the U.S., most Americans have been vaccinated and Canada Canadians are still waiting at home. Uh, we are into a third wave, and that is hugely concerning. And the fact is we needed vaccines like yesterday. And I think mm-hmm. the crux of the issue is this, that we don't have do- domestic production here in Canada. That is a huge problem. Canada had a great vaccine producer about 50 years ago in in fact, we were world leaders. Connaught Labs produced insulin, vaccines for TB, inoculants for polio, and so on. Then it was privatized by the conservatives, sold to a British multinational. And now we're in the situation where we're reliant on other countries to produce the vaccine. And so consequently, we're in this sort of on again, off again. Is it coming? Is it not coming? Is it delayed? Uh, and so on. And that just creates a lot of uncertainty. And the other thing, too, is that the Auditor General's report, and this was a damning Auditor General's report mm-hmm. that clearly stated that there were outstanding, long-standing issues uh, that had never been addressed for more than two decades. That means both the Liberals and the Conservatives have failed Canadians. And now with COVID-19, Canadians did not get the proper early warnings, surveillance, risk assessments, data sharing, uh, and so on. And you know what? This is not good. And, you know, to not have issued an alert uh, to provide early warnings uh, when COVID was first emerged uh, and to use assessment tools designed for domestic outbreak when it was clear a international one. That is just absolutely astounding. And Canadians have been failed by uh, government and uh, by uh, uh, PHAC. Okay, William Amos, let's talk about that because that made a lot of headlines yesterday. Uh, The Auditor General's report, uh, Karen Hogan pointing out those uh, that the public health agency at the beginning of this pandemic was ill-prepared, under-equipped, wrong tools in terms of pandemic prediction, uh, unable to track people who were supposed to be quarantined uh, when they were ordered to self-isolate or quarantine. How do you go about restoring public confidence when you see a damning report like that from the Auditor General? Well, first off, I think we have to thank the Auditor General for her report and for her findings. Uh, and we have to recognize also that uh, uh, the report goes to the Government of Canada's pandemic response up to June of 2020. So it's an early stage assessment. Um, and we've been very clear. We've always worked to protect Canadians. We've always adapted uh, our COVID-19 response based on the latest science, based on the latest uh, latest public health measures. Uh, and, and we've been strengthening this response uh, by leveraging expertise of virologists, uh, frontline healthcare workers, researchers. Um, and the whole point has been to keep Canadians safe. So we're, we, we want to be very clear. 
we accept all of the Auditor General's recommendations. We're going to continue to uh, work with those recommendations to shape our response to COVID-19 going forward. Uh, and it's a reminder of the impact uh, and importance of investing in, in public health. We can't predict when the next public health crisis will come, but we can invest in prevention and preparedness and be ready for, for the next crisis. So, um, you know, we're going to continue to take action as we have uh, uh, since June 2020 to improve our, our systems. And, and I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going uh, to be able to better ourselves. That's what Canadians expect. Uh, and we're going to continue moving in that direction. Okay, I'd like to go to another, the other big event from yesterday, and that was the Supreme Court of Canada's decision uh, reaffirming the constitutionality of the uh, Trudeau government's carbon pricing regime. Karen Vecchio, your leader, Aaron O'Toole, has said he will scrap the carbon pricing regime if your party is uh, as government. Uh, he will scrap the existing regime, which the court has found to be totally constitutional. Uh, when are you going to have an alternative to propose to Canadians? Absolutely. We've been working on that alternative. I know that in the 2019 election, people will say we didn't show enough. There is a lot of meat to the bones when we're going to be looking at this climate policy. Uh, the climate change policy is something that's very important, not just to our party, but to all Canadians. Uh, I look at my own children and I'm wanting to ensure that we do have policies that are collaborative with our provinces. But when we talk about the carbon tax, we still look at that is one way of addressing climate change. It is a way that impacts consumers. It is a way that impacts residents. And in my writing at Algon Middlesex, London, the impact to businesses. And we know that as of April 1st, that carbon tax is hiked up once again. So we can take the money out of people's pockets or we can come up with other ideas. And the green technologies, uh, carbon sequestering, there's so many different things that we can do. I've been out there working on the ground. I know that Aaron has, our, our leader, and many other members of our caucus and our party coming up with real plans that we can implement so that we can actually have a substantial change to what's happening with our climate change and work to make sure that we're ensuring that our country is safe and the whole world is safe from the devastations of climate change. Okay, uh, Jenny Kwan, I'd like to get your reaction to that uh, Supreme Court ruling and what it means for the uh, country's approach to uh, climate change. Well, the Supreme Court ruled that climate change is a national concern. Uh, and this, I think, reflects what Canadians are thinking and are concerned about as well. But what we need, of course, is meaningful action from the Liberal government. The Conservatives uh, at their last convention, they're still talking about whether or not climate change is real. Uh, mm, the reality so much, is but... this, though. With the Liberal, Liberal government, Canada has missed every single climate target that we have set. And the Liberals are not on track to meet our current weak targets. Uh, the Liberals have staked their climate plan on the carbon tax, uh, and while putting a price on pollution is important, but it is not nearly enough. Look, the Prime Minister bought a pipeline, and the Liberals are still giving huge subsidies to big polluters, and that's wrong. So instead of the li Liberals expecting the, car uh, the carbon tax to be a silver bullet, we need immediate investments in transit, in energy efficiency, homes, in buildings, in clean energy. We need a real plan that supports the workers and create the jobs in communities across Canada. Okay, William Amos, last question on that. Um, as has been pointed out by so many environmentalists and UN bodies and scientists, uh, Canada will not make its uh, climate goals with what's on the table now. Uh, the carbon tax will not suffice, uh, even in its good days. So what else is the government going to roll out? In just a few words, uh, can we expect a lot more rolled out between now and the next election, whenever it comes? Well, I would, I, would, I would take issue with that uh, characterization. We are on track to meet and exceed our Paris targets. Uh, and that is because we have uh, a, a now 
constitutionally recognized uh, pricing plan in, in place. It's so important that we got there. The Supreme Court uh, made a very good decision uh, in the interests of all Canadians. And now uh, the, the Conservatives who have been opposing uh, carbon pricing for so many years uh, are going to have to go back to the drawing board. And instead of litigating and litigating and litigating, helping help us move forward. But it's not just about putting a price on pollution, which of course we are doing and ensuring that Canadians uh, get uh, rebates that, that, that are more than the cost itself. What Not we true. need to be doing, what we need to be doing, is ensuring that our plan, which was announced by Minister Wilkinson uh, in November, gets uh, implemented. That is what's going to get us to uh, to our Paris targets and beyond. And yes, we will have uh, later on, uh, later on uh, this year, uh, uh, and hopefully this spring, uh, new uh, new announcements to make around targets. But Canadians should be very clear: the plan that was announced. A healthy environment, healthy economy. It is a solid, solid plan. Okay. I, I speak as someone who practiced in the area of environmental law for eight years, uh, generally representing non-governmental organizations uh, in, in matters uh, including up to the Supreme Court. Okay. Uh, this is a plan that I stand behind and so does our government. Okay, on that we're going to have to wrap it up. I want to thank all three of you and we will be speaking again. Thank you very much and have a good weekend. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks have a so great much. weekend. Bye. Well, joining me now to look at the week in federal politics are two journalists. Mia Rabson is a parliamentary and national reporter for the Canadian Press. And Ian Bailey is a national reporter and the author of the Globe and Mail's Daily Politics Briefing newsletter. Both of you, thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for Wonderful. having us. Okay, well, let's start with uh, a major realignment or with major repercussions on the political, on the political level. The Supreme Court ruled this week that the government's, the Trudeau government's carbon pricing regime was totally constitutional. So... A lot of political repercussions. Mia, start us off with how this is playing out. Well, the carbon price has been one of the starkest partisan divides between Ottawa and the provinces for years now. And for most part, this puts at least the legal question to bed about whether or not Ottawa can do what it wanted to do, which was set a minimum price on pollution across the country. The Supreme Court says it can, which means that the provinces who were fighting this now have to decide what to do. They already are paying the, the federal tax. They need now to decide if they're going to move. They've been staunchly against a carbon price, and they are to at least two of those provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan, have indicated that they are moving towards a provincial version. Saskatchewan, more specifically, they had a plan, it seemed, in place. Maybe they were expecting to lose this challenge a bit more than Jason Kenney was in Alberta. He said today he didn't have a backup plan because he thought he was going to win. But he's now going to consult Albertans, talk to the other provinces, and figure out what to do next, which looks like he will be moving to impose an Alberta version to meet the federal standards. And that's exactly what uh, Saskatchewan's doing. Ontario has said they'll respect the decision even if they disagree with it, but haven't said one way or the other what whether they plan to introduce uh, a, a new tax uh, or a new carbon price uh, for, for the province. So whether they're going to develop their own system or to bring themselves in line with the, gu the, the guidelines that the federal government has set or whether they will have the backstop imposed on them. Okay, well, let's bring it back to Ottawa. Ian, what do you make of the response of Aaron O'Toole? Well, this is obviously coming in the context of a possible uh, federal election uh, sooner than later. So we have the Supreme Court that has basically endorsed carbon pricing, which is um, uh, you know, central to the government's uh, uh, climate change plan. Um, 
it's going to raise a challenge for Aaron O'Toole, who the Conservative Party leader, who is now trying to come up with a climate change plan that's going to satisfy his base, who have obvious concerns over climate change, but also satisfy the voters that Mr. O'Toole needs to win government. So it's, it's a very tricky situation for Mr. O'Toole, who has said he is coming out with a plan coming soon, but has reacted to this ruling by saying that plan won't include a carbon tax. One expects many voters see the carbon tax as kind of the, the base, the, the, so the key central element of any climate change plan. So Mr. O'Toole is going to have to come up with something that um, you know, satisfies them and allows his party to compete for votes. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out over coming weeks. And months. Okay, yeah, because I want to get back to that, because his decision to right out of the gate say a conservative, federal conservative solution will not include a Trudeau carbon tax limits his options. Uh, there's a lot of people, even in conservative circles, who said he could have maybe waited to see the provinces and let the provinces solve the problem for him. Uh, Mia. And I had been hearing leading up to this that that's what they were maybe going to do. In fact, there were some questions a couple of weeks ago at Aaron O'Toole about a carbon price, you know, a couple of weeks before this decision. And he wouldn't actually say a few weeks ago whether or not he still was was against the idea. He did come out against it at the convention last weekend, of course. Then the next day, the grassroots of the party voted against a motion to put in place sort of the, the wording climate change is real into the policy book for the for the party. So he's sort of facing down a party that is still very, very against the idea of carbon pricing, even if there's more and more movement towards the idea that if we're going to deal with emissions, carbon pricing is actually a more conservative, ideologically conservative uh, market based mechanism to, to, to do that. And he's also facing, however, the fact that the last two elections, carbon pricing and the and environment, were a huge part of what people were voting on at the polls. And he himself acknowledged that they partly lost the last election because they did not have a, a climate plan people saw as credible. How he can actually come up with a credible climate plan that does not include a carbon price, at least on consumers, uh, they've all most conservatives have said that they would do it on on bigger emitters. But, but most people will say regulations cost more than doing the carbon pricing. So how he's going to do that, when he's going to do it, is probably uh, the the key. Because the faster he can do that, the more people can actually have a chance to see it uh, before the next election. It might give him more credibility on this file, mm -hmm. which thus far his party has been lacking. Uh, Ian, you alluded to it. Is it is it a situation where obviously the base of the Conservative Party had been so fired up by its opposition to the carbon tax? Uh, in the last election, maybe even the last two elections, well, the last election, that was very much part of the base, and Mr. O'Toole felt that he could not rescind that opposition to a carbon, to a carbon pricing scheme, and he's going to go with regulations. Yeah, I mean, the base may be against it, but the court has approved it, and it's worth noting, a lot of voters may not get into the weeds, and important weeds, of course, of the policy here, but voters may hear the Supreme Court, which doesn't take a position on politics, Supreme Court endorses carbon tax. Yeah. That's going to give some, some armament to the, um, to the rival parties against the conservatives. And it's going to be a very mixed situation with his base, I guess, where his base goes. And, and you know, now that the court has endorsed it, you know, it's a very complicated and tricky situation for Mr. O'Toole, a real challenge of his leadership. But, you know, you never know if there is an election, as seems likely, you never know. Mr. O'Toole may be able to navigate his way out of this situation. We'll have to see how the campaign plays out. Although the environment is ranked high as a concern among voters, uh, we just don't know until the campaign happens and how this plays out, how this is going to work.
Um, and Mia, we'll end with one last indication that the government may be even thinking uh, more seriously about a possible election. There's pressure to pass a bill which would change the electoral rules and allow it to be held more easily in the, in the case of a pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, that bill was introduced uh, before Christmas um, and has basically just sort of sat there without debate. Uh, the Dominic LeBlanc, the, the government, sorry, intergovernmental affairs minister, moved uh, this week. He sort of wants all of the parties to to, to vote and or sort of push that bill forward. He said it's time uh, for, for this, this legislation to be debated. We need to be prepared. It's a sign, perhaps, that the Liberals are definitely getting ready for the possibility of a spring election. A few weeks ago, especially as vaccines were really, really slow, that prospect seemed very unlikely because uh, the Liberals were taking some very big hits over over the vaccine rollout. They still are to some extent, but there's much bigger hope that maybe more va- more Canadians will be vaccinated in the spring and they will have uh, room to have an election. But of course, uh, you know, wait five minutes and I might change my opinion on whether or not we're having an election because things change so some, quickly right now. Something tells me we will be talking about that same issue uh, the next time we speak. Uh, Ian and Mia, both of you, thank you very much for taking part. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching. I'm Martin Stringer. Have a great weekend.